Hey there, welcome to another episode of Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week, we're going to be talking to writer Nicole Perkins about her new book, Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be. It's an essay collection that dives into the intersections of race and gender and pop culture, and also, surprisingly, what Niles Crane from Frasier taught her about romance, which is a lot. Then, two-time Oscar-nominated filmmaker Lucy Walker is going to come by, talk about her new extraordinary film, Bring Your Own Brigade, which takes a look at the California wildfires. She embedded with a team of firefighters during the deadliest week of fires in California's history. Then we're going to hear some music from Broadway star Joshua Henry. Uh, He was in Hamilton, which maybe you've heard of. Uh, Anyway, you're going to love his solo stuff, too. So don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hello. How's it going? Good. I'm very excited. We're trying something a little new this week. We're going to kick off the show with a shout out to a new station that just started airing Livewire. And I'm going to tell you a fun fact about this place. And I want to see if you can figure it out. Okay. Oh, pressure, pressure, (laughs) pressure, pressure. Okay. This city is home to the Harry Houdini Museum. Well, I'm sorry to say that I've actually done way too much reading about Harry Houdini, and I know that the museum is in a town where he did a lot of tricks, and that town is Scranton, PA. Elena Passarello, you are 100% right. Scranton, PA. It's Scranton, PA! (laughs) Known for two things, Harry Houdini Uh and WVIA, the Ah. public radio station in Scranton that is now featuring Livewire. Woohoo! This is a really auspicious start for the new segment at the top of the show, Elena. No yes. pressure, but you just have to get every single one right for oh, the rest no. of Livewire's existence. Well, make sure they're all about magicians and I'll get them right. <laughs> okay, got you. All right, take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, writer Nicole Perkins. Niles Crane is adorable. He is sexy in his own little special way. And filmmaker Lucy Walker. What I learned was that it's not just climate change. There are these other factors. And that is a reason for hope. With music from Broadway star Joshua Henry. When I was doing Hamilton, I I did this whole series called Ham Jams. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, 
the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We got a great show in store for you this week. Uh, as always, we asked the Livewire listeners a question. We asked, what song lyric best describes your life? Mm-hmm. It's going to make sense once we get into the Nicole Perkins conversation. And we're going to hear the listener answers to that question coming up in just a bit. First, though, of course, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show. There is good stuff happening out there in the world. Elena. What is the best news you heard all week? Oh, it's cat news. You know, uh, there's a one in three chance that uh, (laughs) (laughs) all of my good news is cat news. Uh, It's English cat news in Cornwall, England. There's a black cat whose name I believe is Piran, P-I-R-A-N. Really, really cool looking kitty who was out walking with his 83-year-old owner, and after like an hour or so, the neighbors of this cat owner were like, uh, I haven't seen her in a while. And so they started looking for her because she's up there in years. And I guess she usually stays uh, pretty close to home. And it turned out as they were walking around, they saw the cat meowing and meowing and meowing and meowing. And they approached it and it turned out the woman had fallen down a 70 foot ravine. Oh no. And the cat was sitting at the edge of this. I, I don't know what's going on in Cornwall that there's just like ravines out where old ladies are walking. But yeah, somebody uh, put up some cones or something. Yeah, get a fence. But um a Cornish game fence. But like <laughs> but the cat was like a super alarm didn't leave the owner. And now, uh, as of press time, the owner was in stable condition in the hospital because that was a pretty significant fall, but it would have taken so much longer to find her had the cat not been so loyal. I feel like a lot of cat owners will actually tell you that cats are very, they're loyal and loving little animals. I think there's kind of, you know, there's some rumors out there that like, you know, dogs are very loyal to their owners and cats are kind of indifferent. Yeah. But this is clear evidence that cats are very loyal and very interested in what's going on with their humans. Right. <laughs> hey, you know, my uh, best news I saw all week is not too far from where yours occurred and also involves an animal. Okay. This one is Wally the walrus. <laughs> so walruses generally uh, live up in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of unique when you see one just kind of cruising through France and Spain and the UK, which is exactly what Wally has been doing. He's covered like something like 2,500 miles. Whoa. And he just keeps popping up in these places. And everywhere he pops up, he destroys like a minimum of two power boats. Because, <laughs> Why? <laughs> because walruses are from this family of animals that they need to be like sort of lying on something in order to relax and go to sleep. To you rest. Know, they can't just float and sleep in the water. They got to climb onto, you know, an iceberg or someone's bay liner. And so, <laughs> but he's so huge that he keeps ruining these boats accidentally. Oh, no. <laughs> so, like, there's just like all these people tracking Wally now, and he shows up sort of in West Cork off of Kerry in Ireland. And so they came up with a brilliant idea, which was to build him a pontoon. So that he will stop getting onto people's boats. And this, I thought, Elena, was a really selfless thing. One of the people who had their boat destroyed, Wally had been rooting around in a bunch of towels on their boat. (laughs) And so they 
as the boat was like sinking, they like rescued the towels, which smelled like Wally, so they can put him on Wally's new pontoon. His basically, it's a floating couch for Wally. Ah. Uh. And they're putting these Wally towels on the couch, so he gets the memo that that's where he's supposed to be hanging out. Oh my gosh! So he can rest enough, so he can swim home finally. I'm assuming. Exactly. I oh. know the guy is pretty far from home, and so. I think building a couch for Wally might be the best news that I heard all week. Yay, Wally! All right, let's get our first guest on over to the show. She is the former co-host of the podcast Thirst Aid Kit, which was about pop culture and um, desires. She's also the author of a collection of poetry, Lilith But Dark. Her latest book, Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be, examines the intersection of pop culture, race, gender, and relationships. Nicole Perkins, welcome to Livewire. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Before uh, we were actually recording, Elena and I were, were sort of commenting on how the writing is so great in this book because you have a really incredible way of describing people with a very economical bit of language. Has that always been a talent of yours? I guess so. One of the things uh, that I've noticed in like over the years of going to school and reading and going to workshops and trying to learn the craft of writing is people find themselves in the specifics and not the general. So when you try to reach and appeal to everybody, it's a little too a little too drab. But when you get very specific and when you get down to the nitty gritty of things, that's when people find themselves and are like, yes, that's exactly it. You know, and I also think it's just a Southern thing. We are very good at describing, <laughs> describing <laughs> stuff and, and creating pictures with descriptions. Uh, well, something that is was specific to your family's dynamic that I found to be very interesting and in its own way relatable was that your parents would try to send each other messages through the songs that they chose. They would sort of try to work stuff out or maybe not work it out <laughs> through music. And there's actually a chapter in the book about this. Would you mind reading a little bit from uh, the chapter Janet Jackson and the All Black Uniform? Not at all. I'll be happy to. My parents liked to send messages to each other via song. The entire song didn't necessarily have to apply to whatever situation was going on in their marriage. The chorus was the most important part, even just a line or two. My father would come home after being God knows where when he should have been at work, and my mother would cue up It's Over Now by Luther Vandross. It was a song about someone suspicious that his lover was cheating. The chorus went, you did me bad, it's over now. You treated me so bad, it's over now. I don't know if my mother really thought he was cheating. I just think she wanted him to know she knew he had not been doing what he should have, and she was over it. Depending on my father's mood, he'd give as good as he got, usually with Rick James's cold-blooded. The song was about how sexy Rick's lover was and how he'd hoped she'd return his attention. But my father focused on that repeated chorus of, she's cold-blooded. He wanted to call her cold because she couldn't tolerate the way he'd neglect his responsibilities. I got to hear a lot of good music because of my parents' coded fighting. In 1986, Janet Jackson's album, Control, began to take the world by storm, and the eponymous single rocked my home. 
my mother's passive-aggressive game skyrocketed. Janet was 20 and ready to establish herself as more than Michael's little sister. She wanted to show the world her independence, talent, and maturity. My mother was 32. She'd never lived alone. A teenage mother, she went from her childhood home, following the rules of the grandmother who raised her, into what would become an abusive marriage, and she'd never had a chance to establish her own identity. Although Janet was much younger from a vastly different childhood, I think my mother connected to Janet's journey of finding and asserting herself. And Mama was losing patience with my father, his addictions, his abuse, his irresponsibility. She had been working as a nurse at the same clinic since before I was born. In every corner of her life, she was taking care of someone, her patients, her children, and her trifling husband. Mama was tired and ready to gain control over her life. Enter Janet Jackson's third album and its lead single. If my mother started playing control, it was for a few reasons. One, it annoyed my father. Two, she was giving herself a musical pep talk. Three, she was letting my father know that for all his abusive bluster, she was the decision maker in the household. Four, the album was banging and no one could deny that. <laughs> when Control came out, MTV and BET played music videos around the clock. Janet released a video with every single. She danced her heart out, creating choreography that's been passed all the way down to the TikTok generation. In most of the videos from this album, Janet wears all black attire. I was eight years old at the time and didn't think much about it until I overheard someone say that black was slimming and that Janet was trying to hide her chubbiness. That is Nicole Perkins here on Livewire reading from her book of essays, Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be, which is itself a, a Prince lyric. Yes. I'm curious uh, why, why you chose that lyric from Prince uh, as the title for this book. It is from my favorite Prince song, If I Was Your Girlfriend, from my favorite Prince album, Sign of the Times, that came out in 1987. Um, and... I think the song itself is one of the most beautiful songs, most romantic songs I've ever heard. This idea of someone who wants to be uh, in his lover's life so much that he's willing to change who he is mm -hmm. uh, for that. And um, just ultimately thinking about what if I approached happiness from a different angle? Mm -hmm. What if I decided to look at happiness from my terms? Mm -hmm. What a fantasy that is, like how mm -hmm. beautiful that could be. Isn't that amazing? Uh, when we come back from the break, I want to talk about some of the other pop culture influences in your life, which have been surprisingly profound, considering we're talking about things like Frasier and the TV show Bones. <laughs> uh, so we're going to do that coming up in a moment with Nicole Perkins. Her book of essays is Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be. This is Livewire. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners 
uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Nicole Perkins. Her new book of essays is Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be. Uh, we were talking before the break a little bit about Prince and his influence on you. You also write in this book about the influence that Niles Crane from <laughs> Frasier had on you, or at least helping you kind of develop your view of, of, of romance and sex and how to be in the world. I got to be honest with you, did not see Niles Crane coming as the, um, as, as the other influence. <laughs> Most people don't, but Niles Crane is, he's adorable, he's cute, he is sexy in his own little special way oh, yeah. uh, and I, <laughs> I think that's another thing that um, I wanted to get across that sometimes sexy is just not always the you know muscle bound mm -hmm. guy it's not always the woman in a bikini or whatever and that you can find uh, attraction wherever um, and it's okay but Niles is a very passionate person and he's very devout uh, he's also very ethical you know he mm -hmm. has his morals and he sticks with them and he will not sacrifice like um, his professional ethics. He will not sacrifice those even for the love of his life. So I, I admire this fictional character probably too much, but uh, he's great. I have a pop Funko of him in my office, as a matter of fact. You do. <laughs> I do. He, kind of, he might be the person who looks the most like a Funko just in real life. Like he is almost the physical embodiment. I got a bigger head, kind of a narrower body. <laughs> 
We're talking to Nicole Perkins. Her book of essays is Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be. Um, A big component of this book is you describing sexual experiences that you've had. And I'm wondering, and you you know, you hosted a podcast, a Thirst Aid Kit, which uh, was also very much about sort of your adventures in life. Have you just gotten comfortable at this point writing about and talking about that side of your life in a very, as they would say, outward facing way? (laughs) Yes. Um, And, you know, strangely enough, I made it a point not to get too detailed. So Mm -hmm. when people tell me, oh, this was much more explicit than I thought it was going to be, I'm a little like, oh, really? Uh, Because I could I could have gone there. I could have put even more details in, but I did not. um, But I was very aware that there would be a lot of people coming from the Thursday Kit audience who were probably expecting. um, We used to write drabbles on the show, little Mm -hmm. like short fiction, uh, fan fiction pieces of the people that we were talking about. So I knew that some people were probably expecting a little bit of that. And I can do that. But I was not writing erotica in in this. Mm -hmm. I was not writing a, a romance novel, you know, but I just wanted to be open and honest. Sometimes I've had really good experiences and I wanted to say what part of those experiences, um, entailed, not just for me, um, to, to show off, but also so that other people, especially women who might be reading the book could kind of be like, huh, I also had that experience and it was a good time for me too. And maybe they would have like a good memory or maybe they would realize, oh, I've never had this experience. What do I need to do to get that? Yeah. I I would argue maybe that the most, I don't know if erotic is the right word, but the most sensual description of the whole book involves what it used to be like to go to the library back in the Mm. analog days and the pulling out of the card catalog and you're not quite sure how much force to give it and rolling through a microfiche and paying 10 cents for a copy of something. And I was, it was so viscerally moving. It was like romance novel for like 40 year old nerds. (laughs) It was so great. (laughs) Thank you. That is such a a lasting memory for me because that's where, you know, my love of reading and writing came from was going to the library as a child. And, um, you know, it got to a point where I was going to the library by myself just to, you know, just to find books. And also the smell of the library is so distinctive. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, you know that you're in a library. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You already sort of answered this question a little bit, Nicole, but I'm curious, other than yourself, obviously, this is a memoir. Who are you writing this book for? Do you have somebody in mind who you're hoping picks it up and has a certain experience with it? Yes, but no. So I I tried thinking of my audience as I was writing it, and that made me freeze up to the point that I could not sit down um, and I would have to like go get wine to relax my nerves (laughs) in order to write. Um, But ultimately I wanted to be um, read by women, but especially black women um, and especially women in my age range, uh, Gen X, because we know what it's like to be the middle child is kind of pushed to the side, neglected a little bit. Um, But also for Black women, a lot of memoirs um, that we know about tend to be of like famous people, uh, celebrities, or they tend to be kind of how-to manuals, like how to keep a man, how to find a man, how to get married, how to keep your marriage strong along those lines, or how to become a millionaire and stay successful, or like things like that. And obviously, I could never do a how-to because my life has just been, you know, a series of mistakes, but... (laughs) 
<laughs> but that's also what I wanted to get across is that I've made a lot of mistakes and I didn't have a very straightforward uh, career path at all, but I'm still here and I am satisfied and I am still like moving and finding myself and I don't have all the answers. And if you are finding that to be your situation, you will survive and you will come out on top of it. So don't like, don't freak out if you haven't succeeded by 25 or 30 or even 35. There's so much more on its way to you. Uh, Nicole Perkins, the new book is Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, writing the book and thanks for coming on Livewire. Thank you for reading and having me here. This was fun. Hey, special thanks this episode to Jason Brown of Eugene, Oregon. Jason is part of the Livewire member community and generously supports our show with a donation each month, which is a really big deal to us because it's how we're able to keep doing the show. So a huge thanks to Jason for making Livewire possible. This is Livewire. As we do each week, we ask the listeners a question. Uh, This week, because we were inspired by our chat with Nicole Perkins, we asked, what song lyric best describes your life? Elena, what are the Livewire listeners saying? We had some repeats. Uh, It's a really interesting repeat. It's that Mountain Hmm. Goats line, I'm going to make it through this year if it kills me. (laughs) How many years in a row can that be the official anthem of many of us? That's supposed to be... The song isn't, I'm going to make it through these years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make it through this year. I wonder if that's when they finally go back to live shows, if the Mountain Goats will sing it that way. <laughs> I, I, Yeah, I, I know that feeling, though, certainly. I mean, we just keep thinking. There's got to be some light at the end of this tunnel at some point. So I hear you, listeners. Uh, what's another song lyric that describes the life of one of our listeners? This one is After My Own Heart. It's from Becca. Becca's line from a song that describes her life. I want to be the girl with the most cake. I want all of the cake as well. You can have the pie. I saw this family on TikTok, Elena, that their family tradition is you flip a sheet cake, you know, like, you know, you buy at the like grocery store. Yeah. And you have to successfully like you throw you throw it up in the air. You're holding it by the cardboard thing under it. Yeah. You got to flip it and catch it. Is that a family tradition? Is that Uh, something people are doing? Or is it just this one family? What's the goal to make it land flat and not fall on the... Yes, you're supposed to catch it by the cardboard so that the cake is totally fine. But I just feel like you're really rolling the dice with the rest of everyone's night. Yeah. If the person ends up, if the cake flies off or if you... Also, it seems like you got to be buying a pretty low-grade cake for it to stick to the cardboard that hard. Yeah. I don't know. This TikTok family might be sending you down a dark road, Luke. I don't... All right, what's uh, another lyric that our listeners are vibing with? I love this one from Tracy. Tracy's line is, I came in like a wrecking ball. And she's put like (laughs) six E's in wrecking ball. (laughs) I wonder what the people in Tracy's life make of that. Like, you know, I mean, wrecking ball is rarely used in a positive sense, unless, you know, you have a building that's unsafe and you've got to take it down. Yeah. But you rarely hear someone say like, oh, you know, um, Kevin, oh, the guy that's like a wrecking ball. Oh, I love him. We should invite him over to the barbecue. 
Do you remember that video for that uh, that that song with Miley yes, Cyrus? Yes, Miley Cyrus on the wrecking ball. Epic. <laughs> there was this like strange piece of public art at the university where I used to teach in Michigan, and they had to take it down. It was a big chain with a big ball on it because too many college students were putting on a pair of short <laughs> shorts and videotaping themselves swinging around because the song came out. <laughs> <laughs> and they just <laughs> I would have one hundred percent done that if I saw it. And I would have been like forty-two at the time. Yeah. <laughs> <I> st- <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Elena. Uh, we mm-hmm. have another listener question, of course, for next week, uh, which we will be telling you about at the end of this show. So stay tuned for that. This right here, this is Live Wire. Our next guest is a documentary filmmaker who has twice been nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, her subjects have included uh, Amish teenagers and nuclear weapons and snowboarding not all in the same film uh that would be a lot her latest film bring your own brigade premiered at sundance and it follows the aftermath of the campfire in paradise california back in 2018 Uh, it also looks at the history and really the future of fires in california and beyond and it is absolutely fascinating lucy walker welcome to livewire thank you so much Uh, the first 40 or so minutes of this film might be the most intense 40 minutes of film I've ever seen. I mean, because it's real stuff that's happening. Was that intentional? I mean, were you were, were you looking to create an almost overwhelmingly intense opening for this? Well, I think the experience of being trapped in a fire with your life in jeopardy is, to say the least, an overwhelmingly intense experience. And so if the goal is to kind of accurately portray reality in a documentary I think that's what was accomplished. And I don't think it was gratuitous because the rest of the film goes on to really understand what we're seeing and to keep following these characters that we've met, the firefighters and the residents. And if you don't understand how bad these fires are and how Mm -hmm. so many people are dying, that I don't think you can quite understand what's at stake or actually how the events unfold and where the risks truly lie, which is what we really seek to illuminate. So I wanted it to be both accurate, but also useful. And each of the details and the stories is kind of the tip of the iceberg. I did a tremendous amount more research and spoke to even more people and gathered even more harrowing footage and stories. But contained within those stories as well, I think there are clues that make these events kind of case studies so that you can see the bigger picture in these individual details. Just to kind of set the the table for people who maybe haven't had a chance to see the film yet, can you kind of explain where are we at with fires, particularly in the West? Like what is the what's the scale of this and, and where does it fit in in terms of precedent and things like that? We're on fire. Yeah. Right now we have burning the Dixie fire, which is zoomed up the charts to be the second biggest fire in California recorded history. It started yards away from the campfire that we see in the film off of Highway 70 in the Feather River Canyon off Camp Creek Road. So these fires happen in the same place over and over again because geographically they're set up to have winds and droughts. And that is the recipe for these fires. And There's a new fire that just exploded and is 0% contained in extremely windy conditions. I think fire season has lengthened by 75 days is the estimate. 
to the point where firefighters will tell you there's no such thing as fire season. It used to be that they go on shift and their shifts could be up to 70 days at a time. They go home for a day, they get sent out on another 70 days because these fires burn in the back country and the firefighters and equipment all get loaned to one another in a system of mutual aid. But now that so many fires are burning, the firefighters don't come home all summer, but it's not even just the summer anymore. And the fire season kind of peaks at different places uh, at different times and sort of winds up down in Southern California where the rains come the latest, but the winds kick up. Mm. So it's it, we're in an emergency. And I began making this film inspired by the Thomas fire, which was at the time the biggest fire in California history. And I thought, I'll make a case study of that one. But it's now just number eight in the biggest fires mm. wow. in California history, three and a half years later. Wow. And it's not just climate change that's driving it. So the reason it's so extreme is not just that we're in a drought and climate change on you know is obviously trending worse. Climate change isn't trending quite that quickly worse. There are other factors. And as we learn in the film, even if it wasn't for climate change, we would be having a crisis. Mm -hmm. And climate change is a performance enhancer that's certainly mm -hmm. exacerbating the crisis. But it's not just that. And we're also seeing it worldwide. You know, I don't know if you've been seeing any of the images coming out of Greece, mm -hmm. for example. And of course, we all remember Australia uh, last year. So fortunately, this is really not just California and not just the Western United States. This is Livewire. We're talking to Lucy Walker about her latest film, Bring Your Own Brigade. And actually something that was very interesting to me in this film uh, was someone talking about how the smoke that people complain about, uh, those of us that live in cities, cities that don't generally catch on fire, I'm in Portland, we sort of grumble about, oh, it's ruining my sunny day. And this person in the film says, those are the remains of, of my pets. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, as a filmmaker, how do you ask someone hey, can I film you walking around the wreckage of what was your life as you see it for maybe the first time? I mean, that just seems like an intensely personal experience to have with someone. Mm, that's right. And isn't that line poetic? I want to salute the people that I spoke with. Mm -hmm. Again, both firefighters and residents were real poets and really opened up emotionally to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because they know what they're going through is really tremendously rough. And I think they felt very motivated to share the extent of what was happening to them in hopes that it might help other people. It is really difficult interacting with people. And it's not like I have a team of researchers doing things for me. Usually there was just a team of three or four of us in disaster zones driving up and greeting people and seeing if they had the time to chat. And navigating those interactions. But people are, I think, grateful for an opportunity sh to share what they're going through. If it feels like it, it's worth it. And it's a elevating conversation. And my goal is always for it to be a win-win experience when I'm talking to someone. And I've been really grateful that the people I filmed with have really embraced the film. It's a complicated picture. And there are points at which, for example, it turns out that these lovely people I'm chatting with think climate change is a hoax, mm -hmm. for example. And I find myself suddenly realizing that I have very different political views that might be very challenging to them. But actually something that was really a gift, I felt, was that opportunity to have these conversations that went really deep and to perhaps be really bonded in these moments of adversity. 
And it's very human being in a disaster zone and it's very mm-hmm. humanizing how vulnerable we all are in these moments. And we're all, you know, needing the bathroom and needing a snack and <laughs> wanting to know how we're doing. And so it's perhaps very um, straightforward on another level, you know, just to have very human to human kind of a conversations and interactions. And a lot of how I set myself up as a filmmaker in the field in a situation like this is about trying to keep things really authentic and immediate and simple and unpretentious and unintimidating and just really sweet and honest and friendly. And, and then really trust to the human, you know, desire to connect. And, um, it kind of works. It's absolutely extraordinary and, uh, was really, really moving. Uh, something else I wouldn't have known until watching this film, by the way, we're talking to Lucy Walker about uh, her new film, bring your own brigade is, is the, the sort of early approaches and tactics that Native Americans would use. And this is something that really comes out in the movie that, you know, uh, fire is something that was used as a tool and something that was used to keep worse fires at bay for a long time. And then you have this, the colonizers coming in, the Europeans, and 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 fearing fire and, and ultimately making the problem worse. That's exactly right. I learned so much making this film, and I was really quite ignorant when I began. I'd grown up in the UK and I'd lived in New York City. I'd gone to film school. And when I moved to California, I was shocked to see these hills on fire and to see the smoke in the air and the ashes falling. And my first thought was, why can't they put them out? Because in London, the last great fire we had there, the last big fire, I should say, was the Great Fire of London in 1666. So I grew up thinking that fire was a problem that we'd solved and a thing that shouldn't be allowed to happen. That was, you know, if the fire department was on their game, we wouldn't have fires, right? And turns out that that was my European head mistaking this landscape for one that was similar to where I grew up. And it's not. It's a fire adapted landscape. It will burn. And the question is how it will burn. And because we've been suppressing fires in recent years, in the last hundred years, we've had this policy to put out all the fires and stop all the fires with the result that the fuel has piled up and built up. And we didn't recognize that the Native Americans had been living in this landscape and had figured out a way more sophisticated and effective Mm -hmm. way to live safely with fire, which was to allow it to burn or even deliberately set it to burn. We do know that California has burned since the beginning of European contact. And now it's emerging that all along, indigenous people had a better way of living in this landscape. And what we've been doing has unfortunately really stacked up a huge problem that we're now seeing unfold. Another detail in the film that was uh, news to me was that the Olmsted brothers, who famously designed Central Park and a number of America's great mm-hmm. urban parks, they came out to California and they looked around and they just basically said, well, if you want to live out here, if you want to live in the woods, live in a cabin without many of your valuables and just expect it to burn down every so many years. Um, we have not followed that advice mm-hmm. as, as uh, is evidence in the film. That's right. On the contrary, we put these incredibly expensive mansions stuffed with all the most expensive treasures in places like Malibu. And of course, all these hills have majestic views and are 
gorgeous and spectacular places to live. And of course, also in general, not just the rich uh, spots, but in general, we've been pouring into these areas with California's population growth and, you know, general housing crisis and people looking for homes, even just last year with the pandemic, uh, there was a report in San Francisco Chronicle that 40,000 people had moved just from San Francisco out into areas that were extremely high fire mm. risk. So we're still putting people in harm's way. And if you move into one of these gorgeous areas, it might look like a suburban type of subdivision with nice green lawns. And you might not realize that actually this area is extremely flammable, that insurance companies are dropping customers there like flies, and that the previous residents may even have been killed in a fire incident. So it's pretty confusing. And I don't think the public has quite understood all that. It's it's hard to really get your head around the fact that we can't just get the firefighters over and put these fires out and live exactly where we want to live with nice insured homes, right? That seems like you know, the modern way, we should be able to control these things. And the truth is that nature just is going to laugh at that hubris. And unfortunately, we're in real trouble. Before we let you go, Lucy, I just wanted to sort of ask, because you start the film by saying this is, there is reason for hope. I mean, we're caught in this cycle of building in dangerous areas and then trying to put out every fire before it gets too big and thereby allowing more fuel to build up, which means the fires are ultimately not controllable by humans. How do we break out of the cycle? What, what, what did you learn from all this research and, and talking to all these people? Well, I started out thinking that this was a film about climate change. and This problem was rather like climate change, going to be really difficult and really slow to turn around, even if you know we can turn it around at all. And what I learned was that it's not just climate change. There are these other factors. And that is, taking a broad view, a reason for hope. Mm-hmm. Because I do think that even if we're not quite able to get these measures done yet, the fact that we can do things is going to mean that we will do them. I do think the problem's coming into focus. I also look at the logging industry and Mm -hmm. as they lose a tremendous amount of their assets as these places burn, I think they're going to be looking at their practices. I think we're going to be looking at those native burning practices and wondering how we can educate the public so that they don't mind having more control burns and that they understand that that's actually probably the only way that we're going to be able to manage at scale this enormously productive landscape. And as currently we're seeing, I mean, the cost is so humongous of what's happening. Mm -hmm. It is going to be something that we are going to want to solve. And thank goodness there are things that we can do short of solving climate change. It is interesting though, because as you catch the town of paradise where Less than a year earlier, 85 people had been killed in the most horrible way, and 18,000 structures had been lost. When you see them less than a year later, voting against the building codes that everyone is desperate to bring in, and the fire chief begs them, this five-foot setback, if you do one thing, just do that. And even then, you can't get people together to take steps to mitigate this tremendous, deadly risk. And I thought, that is what's going on with climate change. It's Mm -hmm. so hard for us to come together as humans around these complicated risks. And I don't think we've solved it quite yet, obviously, but perhaps problems are starting to crystallize. And the film, I think, really sheds light on that. And I hope as part of us having you know, more honest and practical conversations moving forward about how do we come together to solve these fiendish, wicked, you know, complicated problems you know, en masse. 
Yeah, it really does become a film about human behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucy Walker, uh, the new film is Bring Your Own Brigade. It's a really amazing piece of filmmaking, something everybody should see. Thank you so much for making it, and thanks for coming on Livewire to talk about it. Oh, such a joy. I really appreciated this conversation. Thanks. That was Lucy Walker right here on Livewire. Her film, Bring Your Own Brigade, is streaming on Paramount Plus right now. This is Livewire. We got to take a quick break, but when we come back, you're going to hear some wonderful music from Hamilton's own Joshua Henry. So stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Our musical guest this hour is a legend in the Broadway and theater world. He's best known for his Tony-nominated run on the Scottsboro Boys and as Aaron Burr in the first touring company of Hamilton. He's going to be in the stage-to-screen adaptation of Tick, Tick, Boom, and he's releasing his debut album this fall, Joshua Henry. Welcome to LiveWire. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on. I have been following your career for a while, and I'm just wondering, like, because you can really, really sing, like, when did you first realize that that was something you could do? Like, when did you realize, okay, there's something different going on with my singing voice than, like, everybody else? You know what? Um, I would say, well, the first time was, like, in high school when a teacher told me that, and I, I didn't understand what she was saying but she said and she had tears coming down her face and i believed her at that moment because i was like okay fine what what song had you been singing that brought tears to the eyes of this teacher (laughs) there's a song in a musical called the music man Uh uh-huh and it's called till there was you Uh well sure it's a really it's a really lush croony uh baritone situation and there was music and wonderful roses elena knows it (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was the first time that I I, I knew or I felt that I could really, really sing. Um, And then I think, you know, well, there was a moment where when I got to uh, New York and I was in In the Heights and Uh uh, I was in the ensemble and I I went on for Benny, which is the big role that I understudied. Um, And when I actually did it, I remember people in the wings, Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, Alex Lacamoire, who's an incredible music supervisor, just in the pit, just going like, oh. I felt that. And I heard the audience response. And I, that was a big moment. Um, I always knew that I could sing, but like mm. where I felt the big reaction from people that I had never seen before, or, you know, um, that audience reaction. So that was, that was a moment. Uh, you perform in a variety of different kind of um, genres, I guess. But your big thing has been Broadway. And we've, you know, seen the complete shutdown of Broadway for like well over a year because of the pandemic. I'm wondering what that was like for you and also for your friends, because you must mostly be friends with people that this was what you all did all the time. It was really rough to, you know, I remember March 12th of last year, which is when everything sort of officially shut down on Broadway. 
was supposed to go to a, a, an opening night performance and that didn't <gasps> happen. Um, and then after that, there was no in-person, you know, rehearsal rooms. There was nothing on stage. It was it was devastating. It really was mm-hmm. because, you know, that's how I had expressed myself, you know, in a big way. And so how I got back on my feet was like 15 minutes a day. I was just like, you know what? I'm going to play for 15 minutes. I'm going to pull up the guitar and that's mm-hmm. going to be my productivity for the day. That turned into half an hour, turned into more and turned into writing a whole album. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but it, it just was like I had to really reconstruct in my mind what being productive was and get back to the joy of doing it for myself. How, how long have you played guitar? I've played since I was about 11 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you always kind of had that going. I didn't know if maybe you like developed that like, you know, during oh, the geez. like, you know, as you're understudying on In the Heights, like, you know, you're backstage and <laughs> just kind of noodling around. Well, yes, that is true. Every show that I've done from In the Heights, the last 15 years of my life, I'm always backstage reharmonizing, remixing, you know, thinking of different mashups for, you know, that just occur to me in different styles. When I was in In the Heights, I had some. When I was doing Hamilton, I, I did this whole series called Ham Jams. Where uh-huh. I just <laughs> yeah. a different song in a different style. You know, think of like Wait For It in the salsa yeah. or jazz. Uh-huh. You know, so I that's just, I've always been a music, music fan first before the musicals came along. And I fell in love with musicals. Um, but so now this is a really interesting time because because things have shut down. I've had, I've been able to focus on recording being a recording artist which i haven't had to before because eight times a week i have to be on stage so the Mm -hmm. pause was a really good thing for me uh what song are we gonna hear so you're gonna hear um guarantee okay from my ep called guarantee i wrote it because it made me think about what guarantees we are we have in life as we know the rug can get pulled out from under us so and what i'll say is this song to me is like from the perspective of our phones. Ah, That's all okay. I say. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. That's a good piece of uh, context for everyone. All right. Let's uh, take a listen to this. It's Joshua Henry here on Livewire. I 
These tries, these days of our lives, throwbacks, flashback Fridays, you pray, Lord, let me get that, let me get you caught up, let me get you bought up, woo, everything you can't afford, double click this bliss, I know your wish list, took the pick, fixed it to your every desire, look at me, I you admire, check the blue check, these take you higher, higher, nah, nah, baby, don't run, don't we have fun, don't I show you what you've never done, I need your love, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, you like this one, keep your eyes down on me, everything Joshua Henry right here on LiveWire. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. That's great. And also really has me taking a hard look at my relationship with my cell phone. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever been so attracted to a cell phone. That that cell phone was really, like, working me. Like, <laughs> Doesn't it, though? I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. It's seductive, right? Wow. That makes perfect sense. That Thank was you. incredible, man. Thank you so much for stopping by the show. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great to talk to y'all. That was Joshua Henry right here on Livewire. His album Grow is out on September 10th. Okay, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. Comedian Maria Bamford is going to talk to us about the state of her mental health during the pandemic um, and also why she likes performing comedy on Zoom. She might have been like one of three people <laughs> who like performing comedy on Zoom. Uh, then we're going to hear some non-Zoom comedy from the very funny Shane Brendan, plus... Country musician Brandy Clark is going to tell us about how she draws inspiration from unlikely sources, including trips to Target and also her favorite movie, Jaws. And as always, we're looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? Next week's question is, what misconception does your family have about you or about your life? <laughs> I got one. My Aunt Kathy. Hey, Luke, are you still DJing? <laughs> It's going great, Aunt Kath. Wishful thinking from Aunt Kathy. That's right. I would love to be a DJ. All right. Thank you, Elena. If you have an answer to that question, what misconception your family might have about your life, send it on in via Twitter or Facebook. We are at Live Wire Radio. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Nicole Perkins, Lucy Walker, and Joshua Henry. Live Wire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Paige Thomas is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. 
Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire is created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Jason Brown of Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.